Welcome to the Mapped Out Money Podcast, where we help you understand finance and manage your money so you can get on with living your adventure. You're listening to episode number 63. And today's episode is sponsored by the Mapped Out Money Book Club. This is a, uh, a fun little thing that we've been doing for a couple of months now. And right now we are reading I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. Um, which is one of my favorite personal finance books that I've ever read. I read this book when I was about 18 or 19, had a massive impact on me, and I'm a big fan of Ramit. He has recently updated this book. I think the new version came out maybe a year ago or so. And so that's what we're uh, we're reading right now. And if you would like to join us, we're going to have a discussion on Tuesday, December the 14th. You can go to mappedoutmoney.com forward slash book club to get signed up to be notified for uh, the reminders and get the Zoom link to be able to join us. And we hope you will. Today, we're doing a throwback to was this the first book club book that we did? Yes, it was. Okay. So yeah, we're revisiting The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, but we're focusing this episode on the postscript. Yeah, we're, we're really not going to talk about anything uh, in the rest of the book because in the postscript, he's got this thing called uh, A Brief History of Why the U.S. Consumer Thinks the Way They Do. And honestly, I mean, I loved the whole book, but this was one of my favorite parts of the book just because it was so fascinating to me how we got to where we are, right, in terms of um, not just the U.S., you know, history from a, I don't know, timeline perspective, but also from a technology and money perspective and why why we think the way we do today and why, you know, young people think the way they do about money and, uh, you know, compared to people born in the in the 40s or 50s or something like that. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. So we we kind of floundered back and forth on how we wanted to do this episode, but we've landed on, we're just going to read through the postscript and then he's got it divided into nice little sections. Like he mm-hmm. makes kind of 10 points in the postscript. So after everyone, we'll just kind of pause and discuss. Yeah. And you know, before you just skip this episode, because you're like, oh, that does not sound interesting at all. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to maybe throw out a reason why I thought this was really important. And there's kind of two things So the first is, in the earliest section of the book, I think maybe in the first chapter, Morgan talks about how everyone comes from these different perspectives, right? And how the way you think about money is deeply affected by when you were born, where you were born, and how you grew up, and how money was talked about uh, during the time that you grew up. And Some of those things may be really positive. Maybe you learn some really good things about money, but some of those things might not be. And you want to be able to sort of have enough self-awareness to know the way that you think about money and how it was affected by your childhood so that you can make decisions going forward. The reason I think that this postscript about the historical perspective is so helpful, though, is that when you can understand the history behind how we got to where we're at, as U.S. consumers, you have a lot more empathy for other people around you and their perspectives and maybe people who don't always see it the same way you do. It also really helps you think about where the future might be going and what that might mean for the way you invest your money, the way you save your money, and the way you think about your spending. This uh, quote from Mark Twain of, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes comes to mind here of, we need to really understand historical context 
for how we got here. And maybe we can use that going forward in the future, which really leads me to, to the last thing that I, I think this is so important for is that it just helps you make better decisions. There's a, another quote by George, um, I'm not sure how to say this, Santana, Santania. <laughs> uh, and he says, uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of history. You all know that if you listen to the show, and I'm a big fan of trying to understand how we got here. And I think it'll ultimately help you make better decisions with your money uh, if you understand this too. I think, and I mean, maybe this is somewhat rephrasing what you just said, but what I find really interesting about the section is when I think about it, like in my own life and pressure that I have felt from people in different generations from me. So whether it's like my grandparents pressuring like all of the grandkids to go to college when college now is totally different than it was when they experienced college and like the cost and benefit is totally different. And, and so thinking of it from this perspective of like, okay, analyzing pressure that I have felt from people to do certain things in my life and recognizing that like, well, of course they're pressuring me to do that because at the time that they experienced it, it was like this and it was a thing that made a lot of sense to do and they don't fully understand like how it's changed today. And then also thinking of like what I put pressure on future generations to do that might change without me realizing it. If that does that make sense? Oh yeah. Well, it's it, it makes perfect sense because you're you're trying to to not do that. And and it's natural. So that's yeah. where it goes back to like this was like a a very like he clearly talks about all this in a way that like really made me think about that. And and like I know one of my grandmas, she was born in, you know, nineteen thirty seven. And and so like thinking about that and thinking about like when we've tried to explain to her the internet. <laughs> what, I mean, you know, like there's like living, yeah. there's such like a huge gap and it's like how do you bridge that gap and so that's i mean he kind of talks about that here i mean he opens this section up talking about like if you went to sleep in 1945 and woke up today you'd be mind blown and and so totally different yeah well even like the college thing i always think of um i also think of how in a hundred years we went from children being a net financial positive Right. Like if you had if you worked on a farm or you owned a farm or something like that, you would have kids to help you work on your farm. Right. And they like contributed financially to now. I think they estimate that, you know, to raise a kid from zero to 18 in today's modern world, it's like a hundred thousand dollars or something like you that. Know, and that is an interesting point, because like, again, you get a lot of pressure from that like, a lot of pressure to have a bunch of kids. generation yep. of like, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? And it's like, OK, well, I'd kind of like to be. They're actually a, a huge financial level. burden now. Yes. <laughs> Before we just start popping out kids, you know, like and and yeah, they probably don't think of it that way Mm-mm. because that's really probably not how it was then. You know, like they were probably used to kids being an asset. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yep. Yep. Get them get them working in the field. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we, we uh, but I think your point is such a, a gracious point of saying like, look, we should have empathy for them because of where they're coming from. And also. I should also be aware of how I'm affected based on when I was born so that I don't do the same thing, uh, you know, to future generations. I think that's a good perspective. We're going to shut up now and start reading. All right. So this is the postscript, a brief history of why the U.S. consumer thinks the way they do. 
To understand the psychology of the modern consumer and to grasp where they might be heading next, you have to know how they got here, how we all got here. If you fell asleep in 1945 and woke up in 2020, you would not recognize the world around you. The amount of economic growth that took place during that period is virtually unprecedented. If you saw the level of wealth in New York and San Francisco, you'd be shocked. If you compared it to the poverty of Detroit, you'd be shocked. If you saw the price of homes, college tuition, and health care, you'd be shocked. If you saw how average Americans think about savings and spending in general, you'd be shocked. And if you tried to think of a reasonable narrative of how it all happened, my guess is you'd be totally wrong. Because it isn't intuitive and it wasn't foreseeable. What happened in America since the end of World War II is the story of the American consumer. It's a story that helps explain why people think about money the way they do today. The short story is this. Things were very uncertain, then they were very good, then pretty bad, then really good, then really bad, and now here we are. And there is, I think, a narrative that links all those events together. Not a detailed account, but a story of how things fit together. Since this is an attempt to link the big events together, it leaves out many details of what happened during this period. I'm likely to agree with anyone who points out what I've missed. The goal here is not to describe every play. It's to look at how one game influenced the next. Here's how the modern consumer got here. I don't think there's anything really to say there. We've kind of already done our little intro. So why don't you jump right into the first section? Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of just sets it up. So the first section is titled August 1945, World War II Ends. Japan surrendering was the, quote, happiest day in American history, as the New York Times wrote. But there's the saying, history is just one damn thing after another. The joy of the war ending was quickly met with the question, What happens now? 16 million Americans, 11% of the population, served in the war. About 8 million were overseas at the end. Their average age was 23. Within 18 months, all but 1.5 million of them would be home and out of uniform. And then what? What were they going to do next? Were they going to go to work? Where were they going to live? Those were the most important questions of the day for two reasons. One, no one knew the answers. And two, If they couldn't be answered quickly, the most likely scenario in the eyes of many economists was that the economy would slip back into the depths of the Great Depression. Three forces had built up during the war. Number one, housing construction ground to a halt, as virtually all production capacity was shifted to building war supplies. Fewer than 12,000 homes per month were built in 1943, equivalent to less than one new home per American city. Returning soldiers faced a severe housing shortage. Number two, the specific jobs created during the war, building ships, tanks, and planes, were very suddenly not necessary after it, stopping with a speed and magnitude rarely seen in private businesses. It was unclear where these soldiers could work. Number three, the marriage rate spiked during and immediately after the war. Soldiers didn't want to return to their mother's basement. They wanted to start a family in their own home with a good job, right away. This worried policymakers, especially since the Great Depression was still a recent memory, having ended just five years prior. In 1946, the Council of Economic Advisors delivered a report to President Truman warning of a full-scale depression sometime in the next one to four years. They wrote in a separate 1947 memo, summarizing a meeting with Truman. They said, We might be in some sort of recession period where we should have to be very sure of our ground as to whether recessionary forces might be in danger of getting out of hand. 
there is a substantial prospect which should not be overlooked that a further decline may increase the danger of a downward spiral into depression conditions. This fear was exacerbated by the fact that exports couldn't be immediately relied upon for growth, as two of the largest economies, Europe and Japan, sat in ruins dealing with humanitarian crises, and America itself was buried in more debt than ever before, limiting direct government stimulus. So we did something about it. So that kind of ends the the first section, which is just sort of a summary of, a, I guess, a few points after World War II. What I thought was interesting, he kind of listed them backwards, but really what it comes down to is a bunch of, a whole bunch of soldiers are coming home. They want to get married. They want to start a family. They want a good job. And they want to do that now. And the housing, you know, basically house building is at a total shortage. And then jobs are also at a shortage because now all of these millions of Americans that have been working these jobs to support the war effort, those jobs are no longer needed. And so, you know, policymakers are basically freaking out going, oh, what are we going to do with all of these people? Um, we're also in a ton of debt because of the war. So we can't really find a way to, you know, let the government, you know, just put in a stimulus to to boost this whole thing. I mean, I think the mind blowing thing to me is just how everything impacts everything else. Mm-hmm. You would think like, oh, great, the war's ending. That's great. And and they're like, oh, actually, there's all these problems that might be coming up because of that great thing that happened. Yeah. Um, but like Morgan Housel points out earlier in the book, normally we don't do a very good job of predicting like how unintended consequences. No, like how we'll deal with things in a positive oh, way. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, in the book he talked about like, oh, oil shortages and all this stuff. And basically we got like way more efficient at, at refining oil and, and all that stuff. So we actually dealt with that in a very positive way where all of the predictions were like very negative. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, yeah it totally does. Um, but I think, anyways. I so. think the other thing that was interesting when I read this is, especially if you listen to you know, hardcore history or, or anything else on like ancient history, the the global economy is like a pretty recent phenomenon, you know, like up until a couple hundred years ago, countries were pretty siloed and amongst themselves. And so with the advent of like global trade now, like they were saying, you can't even really rely on our trade economies because Europe and Japan are totally wrecked after the war as well and so now where we've been trading with all these other nations we can't really there's no really way to to increase you know the economy boost from that either so i don't know it's kind of interesting to your point of how all these things sort of work together to it's create also this interesting perfect though, storm when you look at it because you go okay yeah they're not needed building ships and tanks and planes but you do need people building houses totally and so, like, okay, well, there's a job, but also the same people that are probably going to come home and need the job are the same people that are going to be wanting to buy the house. I, I don't know. It's just like interesting thinking about everything. I can't imagine having that, the job to try and deal with this. Yeah. You want to read section two for us? Okay. So here is what we did about those impending problems. Section two, low interest rates and the intentional birth of the American consumer. The first thing we did to keep the economy afloat after the war was keep interest rates low. This wasn't an easy decision because when soldiers came home to a shortage of everything from clothes to cars, it temporarily sent inflation into double digits. The Federal Reserve was not politically independent before 1951. 
the president and the Fed could coordinate policy. In 1942, the Fed announced it would keep short-term rates at 0.38% to help finance the war. Rates didn't budge a single basis point for the next seven years. Three-month Treasury yields stayed below 2% until the mid-1950s. The explicit reason for keeping rates down was to keep the cost of financing the equivalent of the $6 trillion we spent on the war low. But low rates also did something else for all the returning GIs. It made borrowing to buy homes, cars, gadgets, and toys really cheap. Which, from a paranoid policymaker's perspective, was great. Consumption became an explicit economic strategy in the years after World War II. An era of encouraging thrift and saving to fund the war quickly turned into an era of actively promoting spending. Princeton historian Sheldon Guerin writes, After 1945, America again diverged from patterns of savings promotion in Europe and East Asia. Politicians, businessmen, and labor leaders all encouraged Americans to spend to foster economic growth. Two things fueled this push. One was the GI Bill, which offered unprecedented mortgage opportunities. 16 million veterans could buy a home often with no money down, no interest in the first year, and fixed rates so low that monthly mortgage payments could be lower than a rental. The second was an explosion of consumer credit, enabled by the loosening of Depression-era regulations. The first credit card was introduced in 1950. Store credit, installment credit, personal loans, payday loans, everything took off. And interest on all debt, including credit cards, was tax deductible at the time. It tasted delicious, so we ate a lot of it. A simple story and a simple table. So he's got this table with the year and then the total U.S. household debt. So in 1945, total U.S. household debt was $29.4 billion. Okay, 1955, 10 years later, the U.S. household debt is $125.7 billion. So it's basically a $100 billion increase. Mm-hmm. So then um, 10 years after that, 1965 is $331.2 billion. So $200 billion increase. Crazy. So household debt in the 1950s grew one and a half times faster than it did during the 2000s debt splurge. So a couple of things I thought were interesting here. Number one, uh, did reading this make you feel like, huh, I've seen this before? Meaning like um, this has been the game that the Fed has been doing over the last year and a half with COVID has just been lowering and lowering and lowering interest rates, which has caused, you know, this massive housing boom or one of the reasons it's caused this massive housing boom in the U.S. with interest rates being so low. Um, like uh, there was a line in here that said no interest with no money down, no interest in the first year, the fixed rates so low that monthly mortgage payments could be lower than a rental. That's happening right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's part of why we bought a house when we did a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I thought that was interesting because it's like, Hmm. Uh, so we're, we're playing that game right now in the U S and then the other, the other thing I wrote down here was a lot of people have nostalgia about the fifties. Like, you know, like that's when, uh, like Andy Griffith is in that set in the fifties. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, um, in certain, certain parts of the U S anyways, like people talk about the fifties with this sort of, uh, it was set in the sixties, sixties, um, talk about the fifties and sixties with this sort of, uh, nostalgia for like, you know, this, this great time in American history. Right. Um, wishing we could go back there and we're about to talk about that a little bit more in the next couple of sections, but I just wrote down how, 
I think one of the reasons that that time in history sounded so good is because, or or was so good, is because of the spending. Like, credit cards weren't even invented, right, until 1950, which credit cards, to me and you, we've just grown up around them. I mean, we we just, they've just always seemed like, yeah, there's this thing that you can do. But can you imagine running up credit card interest and then getting to write that off on your taxes? Yeah. That's wild. And so that's what I wrote down is like, well, no wonder that time in American history seemed awesome because everybody's just (laughs) way overextending themselves and, you know, buying way more stuff than they really can afford. And the government's letting you write it off. Um, Yeah, that is... uh, what a great time to be alive, you know? I mean, yeah. th- th- that is the birth, uh, like he says, the birth of the American consumer and that sort of overconsumption uh, mindset. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I had no clue that there was ever a time where you could write off your interest on credit cards. That's pretty incredible. Well, and just that table that he shows at the end of that section is mind-blowing. Well, well he said it tasted delicious, so we ate a lot of it. That, yeah. That's exactly what it feels like. Yep. All right, so you ready to go on to number three? Yep. All right, so section three, pent-up demand for stuff fed by a credit boom and hidden 1930s productivity boom led to an economic boom. The 1930s were the hardest economic decade in American history, but there was a silver lining that took two decades to notice. By necessity, the Great Depression had supercharged resourcefulness, productivity, and innovation. We didn't pay that much attention to the productivity boom in the 30s because everyone was so focused on how bad the economy was. We didn't pay attention to it in the 40s because everyone was focused on the war. Then the 1950s came around, and we suddenly realized, wow, we have some pretty amazing new inventions, and we're really good at making them. Appliances, cars, phones, air conditioning, electricity. It was nearly impossible to buy many household goods during the war because factories were converted to making guns and ships. That created a pent-up demand from GIs for stuff after the war ended. Married, eager to get on with life, and emboldened with new, cheap consumer credit, they went on a buying spree like the country had never seen. Frederick Lewis Allen writes in his book, The Big Change, this. During these post-war years, the farmer bought a new tractor, a corn picker, an electric milking machine. In fact, he and his neighbors, between them, assembled a formidable array of farm machinery for their joint use. The farmer's wife got the shining white electric refrigerator she had always longed for and never during the Great Depression had been able to afford, and an up-to-date washing machine and a deep-freeze unit. The suburban family installed a dishwashing machine and invested in a power lawnmower. The city family became customers of a laundromat and acquired a television set for the living room. The husband's office was air-conditioned, and so on, endlessly. It's hard to overstate how big this surge was. Commercial car and truck manufacturing virtually ceased from 1942 to 1945. Then, 21 million cars were sold from 1945 to 1949. Another 37 million were sold by 1955. Just under 2 million homes were built from 1940 to 1945. And then 7 million were built from 1945 to 1950. Another 8 million were built by 1955. Pent-up demand for stuff and our newfound ability to make stuff created the jobs that put returning GIs back to work. And there were good jobs, too. Mix that with consumer credit and America's capacity for spending exploded. The Federal Reserve wrote to President Truman in 1951, 
By 1950, total consumer expenditures together with residential construction amounted to about $203 billion, or in the neighborhood of about 40% above the 1944 level. The answer to the question, what are all these GIs going to do after the war, was now obvious. They were going to buy stuff, with money earned from their jobs making new stuff, helped by cheap borrowed money to buy even more stuff. I don't know that I really have anything to add there. I just think reading this and like the way he so concisely lays things out and explains like how all of these events fit together. I just think it's really interesting. Oh, I think it is too. Well, and it is funny, like thinking about, you know, my mamaw was born in, let's see, she's what? She's, she's 87, 80, right? So she would have been born in the early 1930s. You know, she was in her... 20s and 30s, kind of midlife young kids at home and stuff during this time. And I remember her talking about like going from, and they were poor, like she didn't have any money growing up. And I, and she even going from, you know, no running water and outhouses to like indoor plumbing and having like a TV and being able to go out in the yard and change the channels. I remember her talking about and telling stories about how like amazing this was you know how was a big 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 deal um it is it is really funny to think about that and they they were on the, the poorest end of things they didn't really have anything back then and so and even you know they experienced this massive sort of surge in uh lifestyle due to this whole thing it's yeah. pretty interesting okay you ready to move on to yeah. section four all right gains are shared more equally than ever before the defining characteristic of economics in the 1950s is that the country got rich by making the poor less poor. Average wages doubled from 1940 to 1948, then doubled again by 1963. And those gains focused on those who had been left behind for decades before. The gap between rich and poor narrowed by an extraordinary amount. Lewis Allen wrote in 1955, the enormous lead of the well-to-do in the economic race has been considerably reduced. It is in the industrial workers who, as a group, have done best. People such as a steel worker's family who used to live on $2,500 and now are getting $4,500, or the highly skilled machine tool operator's family who used to have $3,000 and now can spend an annual $5,500 or more. As for the top 1%, the really well-to-do and the rich, whom we might classify very roughly indeed as the $16,000 and over group, their share of the total national income after taxes had come down by 1945 from 13% to 7%. This was not a short-term trend. Real income for the bottom 20% of wage earners grew by a nearly identical amount as the top 5% from 1950 to 1980. The equality went beyond wages. Women held jobs outside the home in record numbers. Their labor force participation rate went from 31% after the war to 37% by 1955 and to 40% by 1965. Minorities gained too. After the 1945 inauguration, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote about an African-American reporter who told her, do you realize what 12 years have done? If at the 1933 reception, a number of colored people had gone down the line and mixed with everyone else in the way they did today, every paper in the country would have reported it. We do not even think it is news, and none of us will mention it. Women and minority rights were still a fraction of what they are today, but the progress toward equality in the late 40s and 50s was extraordinary. The leveling out of classes meant a leveling out of lifestyles. 
Normal people drove Chevys. Rich people drove Cadillacs. TV and radio equalized the entertainment and culture people enjoyed regardless of class. Mail-order catalogs equalized the clothes people wore and the goods they bought regardless of where they lived. Harper's Magazine noted in 1957, The rich man smokes the same sort of cigarettes as the poor man, shaves with the same sort of razor, uses the same sort of telephone, vacuum cleaner, radio, and TV set, has the same sort of lighting and heating equipment in his house, and so on indefinitely. The differences between his automobile and the poor man's are minor. Essentially, they have similar engines, similar fittings. In the early years of the century, there was a hierarchy of automobiles. Paul Graham wrote in 2016 about what something as simple as there only being three TV stations did to equalize culture. It's difficult to imagine now, but every night, tens of millions of families would sit down together in front of their TV set, watching the same show at the same time as their next door neighbors. What happens now with the Super Bowl used to happen every night. We were literally in sync. This was important. People measure their well-being against their peers. And for most of the 1945 to 1980 period, people had a lot of what looked like peers to compare themselves to. Many people, most people, lived lives that were either equal or at least fathomable to those around them. The idea that people's lives equalized as much as their incomes is an important point of this story we'll come back to. I really loved this section. Uh, First off, the inflation stuff is fascinating to me just because when he talks about how, like, can you imagine these steel workers went from $2,500 to $4,500? Like, that's a year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the rich man was making $16,000 a year. Yeah. So it's like, man, inflation has really done a number on things since, you know, 50, 70 years ago. But I, I really did love this section just because, again, it, it helps when I hear about older people longing for this time in American history. It makes sense when you think about how we do measure wealth, not by objective numbers or by objective things that we have access to, but based on what we have access to compared to everybody around us. And objectively, like poor people today have iPhones, right? Which is objectively, you know, maybe their life, maybe they have access to nicer things than the people in the 50s. But the wealth gap has once again grown between the poorest today and the richest today, whereas in American history, this is the time where it's the closest it gets. And so everyone feels like we're all kind of playing the same game to a certain extent. You know what I think is interesting, though, to think about with that is is that I actually feel like and I'm not talking about like technical numbers here, but. I do feel like what you said earlier of like, hey, we basically all have iPhones in our pockets. Like, I feel like on the whole, we all live pretty, quote unquote, rich lives. You know, like most people have the ability if they need to travel somewhere to hop on an airplane and go see whoever they need to visit or, you know, whatever. We all have our smartphones like we all basically have access to the Internet. Like it's the exception to the rule if you don't have those things. But we have a much clearer and more up-close view of really, really rich people. Because of social media. Yes. That's what I was going to say is, well, and then also uh, legitimately by the numbers, there are the richest there's people a, have a like gap. An, a way astronomical gap. Yeah. And so even to the point of back then, let's say even the wealthiest folks are watching the same TV shows. Well, now the richest of the rich 
they're not watching what you and I are watching. They're flying Justin Bieber in private to do a private show at their whatever, whatever island to, you know, entertain them and their friends. Well, my thing is, do I even want that? Yeah, but we don't ask that question. Yeah. It's all about like what my neighbor has or what they have and what we have relative. And at this point in American history, it's the closest and most relative that we ever get. And that's why this time is often regarded as like one of the best times in American history, which I I think is interesting because objectively speaking on paper, it's not, but humans are emotional and not objective. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it is. I don't know. I I love this section. It's just really fascinating and it helps explain, you know, what we talk about on this show all the time, which is how, you know, money is is not this like numbers-based, mathematical, logic-based thing. It's an emotional thing. There would be no way of doing this. It's just kind of something that I think is interesting to think about. If you could take like the same level of access that people had into the lives of celebrities and super rich people like back in the 60s, let's give them that same level today today, and then ask people like how satisfied they feel with like what they have. If the satisfaction levels would be like way through the roof compared to what they are. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure they would be higher than what they are for sure. I, I just think that's something important to recognize because again this is something that I've done with myself like if I feel myself like getting really um uncontent is that mm-hmm. the right word? discontent discontent that doesn't sound right I don't know but anyways if I if I feel myself getting that way then trying to make that conscious effort of like you know what I'm just getting it on social media less this week because I do think that, makes that a big difference. social media is like a major culprit with our feelings of dissatisfaction and <laughs> lack of gratitude for what we do have and, and all of that stuff. So I feel like I always hate on social media. Sorry, social media. But humans are just, you know, we're really bad at comparing ourselves to others. We're so influenced. We are. All right. Are we ready for section five? Yeah, let's jump in. So section five, debt rose tremendously. But so did incomes, so the impact wasn't a big deal. Household debt increased fivefold. Wow, fivefold, jeez. Household debt increased fivefold from 1947 to 1957 due to the combination of new consumption culture, new debt products, and interest rates subsidized by the government programs and held low by Federal Reserve. But income growth was so strong during this period that the impact on households wasn't severe. And household debt was so low to begin with after the war. The Great Depression wiped out a lot of it, and household spending was so curtailed during the war that debt accumulation was restricted. So the growth in household debt to income from 1947 to 1957 was manageable. Household debt to income today is just over 100%. Even after rising in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, it stayed below 60%. Driving a lot of this debt boom was a surge in home ownership. The home ownership rate in 1900 was 47%. It stayed right about there for the next four decades. Then it took off, hitting 53% in 1945, 62% by 1970. A substantial portion of the population was now using debt that previous generations would not and could not have accessed. And they were mostly okay with it. David Halbertstam writes in his book, The Fifties. They were confident in themselves and their futures in a way that those growing up in harder times found striking. This goes back to like grandparents, you know, in different times and not necessarily understanding. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. They did not fear debt as their parents had. 
They differed from their parents, not just in how much they made and what they owned, but in their belief that the future had already arrived. As the first homeowners in their families, they brought a new excitement and pride with them to the store as they bought furniture or appliances. In other times, young couples might have exhibited such feelings as they bought clothes for their first baby. It was as if the very accomplishment of owning a home reflected such an immense breakthrough that nothing was too good to buy for it. Now's a good time to connect a few things as they'll become increasingly important. And then Housel sort of bullet points a a few things here. He says, America is booming. It's booming together like never before. It's booming with debt that isn't a big deal at the time because it's still low relative to income. And there's a cultural acceptance that debt isn't a scary thing. Yeah, okay. This makes me think about, because we so recently bought a house, and the reaction of people to you buying a house, like it's this huge... Accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. On the one hand, I understand like where people are coming from, like, oh, you saved up a down payment and, you know, you whatever, you did the thing, like, okay, like, yeah. But also... People act like it's the wisest financial decision you ever made. Like, oh, I'm so glad you're not renting anymore or whatever, and that you invested in a house. Like, we've heard that (laughs) so much. And it's like, okay, we did not invest in a house. Like, we bought a house for us to live in. Like, it's not an investment. If we took all the money that we've put into this house and down payment and fixing actual crap that is broken, like, I don't know, the hole in our ceiling that we currently have in our living room, uh, and... You know, then all of the upgrades and stuff that we're wanting to do, if we took all of that money and actually invested it and then just rented, financially, we'd we'd probably be ahead. Yes. So we didn't buy this because it was the smartest financial move. No. And so, but what's funny is, especially like grandparents. Yes reacted that way and it's just funny because you know when they're talking i'm just sitting there thinking in my head like okay like you're proud because we took the money that we used to have in the bank as actual like money (laughs) and bought a house with it and like and that's like something to be proud of well but like so like what and not even hating on our grandparents this is more just like that you're a product of the time in which you were born and so like but for us so for our age right now our grandparents are who this chapter is about yes and that's what i'm saying like you totally understand why it's their parents that were going like what the heck they're from the great depression that are going like what in the world are you doing like with all this debt it's our grandparents who are like what this section's about. Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting to like have a little bit more insight into why they feel the way they do about totally. things. I know we don't make any sense to them either. But um, Well, and we probably won't make much sense to our grandkids no, I'm sure we won't. forty years from now. I'm sure. So. But I do think I do think it's important because a lot of people get wrapped up in that like, oh, I'm throwing my money away renting mm-hmm. kind of mindset. And I think this is probably the time in American history where that that phrase even starts to get birthed a little bit. I agree. And that's just a dangerous mindset because it's not true. And so like recognizing that, you know, when you're renting, you're paying for different things, you're paying for peace of mind and stability in that you don't have to have the money to front all of these emergency things that can come up Mm -hmm. when you own a house. Like you've got a landlord that has to deal with that. And so that is... That's a valuable asset. A landlord is a valuable asset because yeah. <laughs> they take a lot of the risk on for you. And so just just trying to beware of like when people are pressuring you into these big financial decisions and like 
not letting yourself feel like, well, that's the only wise financial decision that there is, you know, because all of these people say so. Um, Just recognizing like, this is why they think that way. It's understandable why they think that way, but it doesn't make it true for me right now. Well, even just going back to like incentives and how humans were were just so, in some ways we're so emotional, unpredictable, but in some ways because we're so emotional and like we desire comfort and ease, we're so predictable. You know what I mean? So it's like if you drop interest rates, make them really low, make interest rates on credit cards tax deductible, and then we have all these new things like, oh, you hate doing dishes? Here, just finance this dishwasher. Oh, you hate washing clothes by hand? Here, just finance this. Well, like It's like, yeah, of course we're going to buy all those things for our new houses that we love. uh, This really does make me think of like now what we're dealing with in like a firm pay. Yes. Oh so my gosh. When Nick Duh. and I bought our couch, we did 0% financing through a firm for a year because like we had all of these expenses and we were like, you know, we'd rather just not kiss all of that cash goodbye sure. all at the same time. So we did that. But that is literally an option on almost everything. Everything. You buy. Like I was looking at a sweater and it's like, you can finance this for $6 a month, you know, whatever. For six months. It's like, what? And so we've had the discussion of how easy it would be to affirm, pay yourself to death. Well, these days with with the internet-based businesses, we already kind of subscription ourselves to death. Yeah. And so now you can subscription yourself to death plus like, I think, and it's called Klarna, I think, over in the in oh. Europe. So you have Klarna and Affirm both that are both these companies now. I've seen that one too. Yeah, that are both companies that do these sort of split pay things. Mm -hmm. And if you have good credit, um, then the interest rate can be super low or zero. Yeah. And it just seems like a no-brainer. Well, of course, why wouldn't I do that? And ultimately the problem is, and it's proven that this is why they do this. Yes, technically, if you were going to buy the couch anyways – Yes, technically, maybe it makes sense to do the Affirm 0%. We should do a whole episode on this. But the problem is, is that by the sheer fact of that being an option, you are more likely to just make the purchase anyways. Whereas if you had to front all the cash, there's a higher likelihood that you would decide, I'm going to wait on this purchase or I'm not going to purchase it at all. And what these companies do that allow you to split it all out is they just increase the likelihood of you making a purchase. Mm -hmm. And that's the dangerous part. Anyways, we will do an episode on that. Yeah. So let's get back to uh, back to this. So section six, do you want to you want to do this one? Yep. Things start cracking. 1973 was the first year where it became clear the economy was walking down a new path. The recession that began that year brought unemployment to the highest it had been since the 1930s. Inflation surged, but unlike the post-war spikes, it stayed high. Short-term interest rates hit 8% in 1973, up from 2.5% a decade earlier. And you have to put all of that in the context of how much fear there was between Vietnam, riots, and the assassinations of Martin Luther King and John and Bobby Kennedy. It got bleak. America dominated the world economy in the two decades after the war. Many of the largest countries had their manufacturing capacity bombed into rubble. But as the 1970s emerged, that changed. Japan was booming. China's economy was opening up. The Middle East was flexing its oil muscles. A combination of lucky economic advantages and a culture shared by the greatest generation, hardened by the Depression and anchored in systematic cooperation from the war, shifted when baby boomers began coming of age. 
A new generation that had a different view of what's normal hit at the same time a lot of the economic tailwinds of the previous two decades ended. Everything in finance is data within the context of expectations. One of the biggest shifts of the last century happened when the economic winds began blowing in a different, uneven direction, but people's expectations were still rooted in a post-war culture of equality. Not necessarily equality of income, although there was that, but equality in lifestyle and consumption expectations. The idea that someone earning a 50th percentile income shouldn't live a life dramatically different than someone in the 80th or 90th percentile. And that someone in the 99th percentile lived a better life, but still a life that someone in the 50th percentile could comprehend. That's how America worked for most of the 1945 to 1980 period. It doesn't matter whether you think that's morally right or wrong. It just matters that it happened. Expectations always move slower than facts. And the economic facts of the years between the early 1970s through the early 2000s were that growth continued but became more uneven, yet people's expectations of how their lifestyle should compare to their peers did not change. Okay, so this exactly starts getting into what we just talked about, which is 1950s, 60s, everybody's living basically more or less a similar lifestyle. And I like what he says about how even the richest of the rich, their life is comprehensible. Comprehensible. Com- comprehensible. Is that comprehensible? Com- comprehensible. People in the 50th percentile can comprehend it. They can yeah. understand that life. Whereas... You know, like if you go read, there was this thread that was done on Reddit uh, sometime back, which maybe we should read that on the podcast sometime. I thought that was fascinating. That talked about how um, how your life changes at different income levels. And this guy broke down all these different wealths from like 10 million to 50 million to 100 million to 200 million to then 1 billion to then 10 plus billion and how your life changes at these different levels. And he basically has access to different people at these levels, and that's you know his perception over the last decade or whatever. But it was fascinating because when you do hear about people at even 50 million plus, which obviously is like an insane amount of money, but their life is kind of un kind of incomprehensible from certainly my life or the average person's life. Like when you read that, you go like, really? That's how they're able to live? That's not I can't even understand what it would be like to live that way. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he's talking about here is this is what's starting to happen in America, but our expectations are still that we should be able to live somewhat of the same life. Yeah. And it's sort of, you can sort of read the writing on the wall that like this is setting it up for some tension. Well, and we've, we've talked about this too, and I won't, I won't take too long on this, but just expectations around so much stuff have gotten outrageous. And so one of the things that me and you just talk about a lot between the two of us is all of the expectations around wedding stuff. Yeah. And so the expectation of I should go on this huge bachelor or bachelorette trip and the expectation that like all the bridesmaids and groomsmen, you know, pay to go do these big elaborate trips. Like we see a lot of people doing that stuff and you're like, there's no way that most of those people can afford no, to they're, do they're that. putting it on credit cards. Yeah. Yeah. But we see we see other people doing that and we see people that are probably way richer than us like doing that and so our expectation is like well that's what we should get to do too mm-hmm. you know well all the movies right i mean you have yep, the, the, the bachelor hangover, you have the hangover the bachelorette or not no that's not no, bridesmaids yeah bridesmaids <laughs> bridesmaids into a reality tv show <laughs> no, no, no. bridesmaids and the hangover right they're like the the iconic 
that's what you're supposed to do. And we do that with all kinds of stuff, you know, and me and you do it with stuff too. Well, even we've talked but, about this, but even the expectation that like I should be able to live the way I grew up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Like that's yep. a big one where my parents have worked really hard. They've gotten me to be able to live a, a decent life growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I get out of college and I'm 22 years old and I expect to continue living the way that I've lived the past 22 years where like, that's not realistic. Like, oh, I'm yeah. kind of going to have to start at zero. Yeah. I mean, you say that to me all the time. You're like, hey, like, we're only like 30 years old right now. Yeah. Like, of our- course, we don't have our house perfectly <laughs> put together and exactly the way we want it. Like, it takes some time to get there. Yes. So, yeah, you're totally right. Our expectations, I think, are just, I don't know. And then you get into the whole, like, entitlement conversation and all of that stuff. That's but, a different conversation for a different day. But, yes. <clears throat> There's, like, five episodes there. But, Okay, so on to section seven. Section seven. The boom resumes, but it's different than before. Ronald Reagan's 1984 Morning in America ad declared, It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married, and with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. That wasn't hyperbole. GDP growth was the highest it had been since the 1950s. By 1989, there were 6 million fewer unemployed Americans than there were seven years before. The S&P 500 rose almost fourfold between 1982 and 1990. Total real GDP growth in the 1990s was roughly equal to that of the 1950s, 40% versus 42%. President Clinton boasted in his 2000 State of the Union speech, We begin the new century with over 20 million new jobs, the fastest economic growth in more than 30 years, the lowest unemployment rates in 30 years, the lowest poverty rates in 20 years, the lowest African-American and Hispanic unemployment rates on record, the first back-to-back surplus in 42 years, and next month, America will achieve the longest period of economic growth in our entire history. We have built a new economy. His last sentence was important. It was a new economy. The biggest difference between the economy of 1945 to 1973 period and that of the 1982 to 2000 period was that the same amount of growth found its way into totally different pockets. You've probably heard these numbers, but they're worth rehashing. The Atlantic writes... Between 1993 and 2012, the top 1% saw their incomes grow 86.1%, while the bottom 99% saw just a 6.6% growth. Joseph Stiglitz in 2011. While the top 1% have seen their incomes rise 18% over the past decade, those in the middle have actually seen their incomes fall. For men with only high school degrees, the decline has been precipitous. 12% in the last quarter century alone. It was nearly the opposite of the flattening that occurred after the war. Why this happened is one of the nastiest debates in economics, topped only by debate over what we should do about it. Lucky for the purpose of this discussion, neither matters. All that matters is that sharp inequality became a force over the last 35 years, and it happened during a period where culturally, Americans held onto two ideas rooted in post-World War II economy, that you should live a lifestyle similar to most other Americans, and that taking on debt to finance that lifestyle is acceptable. 
if I could wax my own little, you know, wax philosophical here and sort of throw out my idea for why I think this happened uh, without without trying to get into the the weeds of politics, I think that a big reason that this happened really just comes down to technological advances and how, you know, during this period, so what what is the period he says, uh, 1982 to 2000, and then 1993 to 2012 is the top 1%, saw their income grow, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, that's that's the internet boom. That's the dot-com bubble. That is all of these social media platforms. That is all of these massive technological advances to where the internet now brings scale. And it basically allows people to leverage the internet. This goes back to, you know, we've talked about Naval Ravikant's book on, um, you know, getting and growing wealth. And he talks about the importance of using leverage. Leverage just meaning like, like if you think about a, you know, trying to move a big heavy rock, the bigger lever you get the easier it is to move that rock. Well, the internet acts as a massive lever for building a business. And so that's how you have, you know, Amazon and Netflix and all these massive companies being able to create outsized, insane amounts of wealth off the back of the internet. So, you know, without getting way into the weeds about why it's happened and what to do about it, I think I think that's part of why it's happened, that the internet has been invented and Never before in human history has there ever been the ability to have that kind of leverage. I think the other thing that's interesting to talk about here, do you remember, I think it was a tweet, whoever it was, was talking about how technology, it just produces the two extremes in like all areas. So technology allows you to get healthier than ever before or more unhealthy oh, than just ever as, before. Yeah, as technology advances, like in American, so in America right now, we have these two dichotomies going on where we've got the largest number of obese people in America. I think um, obesity rates for kids under 16 just jumped from 30 something percent to 42% in the last year. And that's in large part due to technology making unhealthy, really good tasting food and drinks readily available to everybody. At the same time, it's also made our life very easy, so we don't have to work nearly as hard because we're sitting inside all day. So that's on the one hand, we're becoming unhealthier. On the other hand, you've got all these amazing new technologies that actually help you get healthier if you choose to do it. So we've got the most unhealthy people ever in American history right now, alongside the healthiest, strongest, rippedest, most intense athletes that have ever been, you know, around in human history. Well, and just distilling it down even more than that, like you can sit on the couch with your phone all day and look at social media and like get into a really unhealthy spot, like physically and mentally because of how you use your phone. Or you can take that same phone and you can use it to um, have an exercise app that like makes workouts really, really easy. You can use it to learn new skills and things that you didn't know before. You can use it to connect with other people who are like-minded and have similar interests and similar goals as you. Like That tweet was basically saying that you've you've got a disparity between people like you've got people who go hard in one direction and then you've got people who go go hard in the other direction you don't have a lot of yeah that as as technology advances in multiple aspects of our life including income which is what morgan house was talking about here you basically have people getting pushed to the extremes you got more and more people on the low end and more and more people on the high end and not a lot of people in the middle yeah Okay, section eight. Yep. The big stretch. 
Rising incomes among a small group of Americans led to that group breaking away in lifestyle. They bought bigger homes, nicer cars, went to expensive schools, and took fancy vacations. And everyone else was watching, fueled by Madison Avenue in the 80s and 90s and the internet after that. The lifestyles of a small portion of legitimately rich Americans inflated the aspirations of the majority of Americans whose incomes weren't rising. A culture of equality and togetherness that came out of the 1950s and 1970s innocently morphs into a keeping up with the Joneses effect. Now you can see the problem. Joe, an investment banker making $900,000 a year, buys a 4,000-square-foot house with two Mercedes and sends three of his kids to Pepperdine. He can afford it. Peter, a bank branch manager making $80,000 a year, sees Joe and feels a subconscious sense of entitlement to live a similar lifestyle because Peter's parents believed and instilled in him that Americans' lifestyles weren't that different even if they had different jobs. His parents were right during their era because incomes fell into a tight distribution. But that was then. Peter lives in a different world, but his expectations haven't changed much from his parents, even if the facts have. So what does Peter do? He takes out a huge mortgage. He has $45,000 of credit card debt. He leases two cars. His kids will graduate with heavy student loans. He can't afford the stuff Joe can, but he's pushed to stretch for the same lifestyle. It is a big stretch. This would have seemed preposterous to someone in the 1930s, but we've spent 75 years since the end of the war fostering a cultural acceptance of household debt. During a time when median wages were flat, the median new American home grew 50% larger. Can we just pause that like for a second? During a time when the median wage was flat, the median new American home grew 50% larger. And then he's got this awesome little chart here that talks about how the median square feet of American new homes in 1973 were 1,500 square feet. And the median new home uh, in 2000, maybe it looks like five or so, 2,250 square feet. Yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. The average new American home now has more bathrooms than occupants. Nearly half have four or more bedrooms, up from 18% in 1983. The average car loan adjusted for inflation more than doubled between 1975 and 2003, from 12300 to 27900 And you know what happened to college costs and student loans. Household debt to income stayed about flat from 1963 to 1973. Then it climbed and climbed and climbed from around 60% in 1973 to more than 130% by 2007. Even as interest rates plunged from the early 1980s through 2020, the percentage of income going to debt service payments rose, and it skewed toward lower income groups. The share of income going toward debt and lease payments is just over 8% for the highest income groups, those with the biggest income gains, but over 21% for those below the 50th percentile. The difference between this climbing debt and the debt increase that took place during the 1950s and 60s is that the recent jump started from a high base. Economist Hyman Minsky described the beginning of debt crisis. The moment when people take on more debt than they can service. It's an ugly, painful moment. It's like Wiley e. Coyote looking down, realizing he's screwed and falling precipitously, which of course is what happened in 2008. So again, just thinking about like, I think about how my dad grew up, right? So my dad is one of four kids, two parents, grew up in a house with one bathroom. And 
you know, that bathroom is like the old school, had a door on each side. It was in the middle of the house and you like had to walk through the bathroom to even get to like other parts of the house. And it's so crazy how like we, you and I live in a house now with two bathrooms and I'm like, man, it'd be nice to have a third bathroom. Yeah, totally. I mean, we totally fall, fall into that. Yep. Um, I, I just find it really interesting. Like, you know, I, I use my Instagram to basically only follow designer people that mm-hmm. I like. And I have noticed several of them, like they'll post a picture of like their kid's bedroom and they'll say like, yes, we commit the heinous crime of having our kids share a bedroom. Do not message me about this. Like, wow. and so I'm like, wow, they have had people like hating on them for having their for kids, having share, their in kids a share a bedroom. And it's like you said, I mean, that used to just be that par for normal. the course. Yeah. yeah. Just normal. So it is, it is interesting, the discomforts that we begin to feel entitled not to experience. Yeah. So, yeah. section nine? Yeah, section nine. Once a paradigm is in place, it's very hard to turn it around. A lot of debt was shed after 2008, and then interest rates plunged. Household debt payments as a percentage of income are now at the lowest levels in 35 years. But the response to 2008, necessary as it may have been, perpetuated some of the trends that got us here. Quantitative easing both prevented economic collapse and boosted asset prices, a boon for those who owned them, mostly rich people. The Fed backstopped corporate debt in 2008. That helped those who owned the debt, mostly rich people. Tax cuts over the last 20 years have predominantly gone to those with higher incomes, People with the higher incomes send their kids to the best colleges. Those kids can go on to earn higher incomes and invest in corporate debt that will be backstopped by the Fed, own stocks that will be supported by various government policies, and so on. None of these things are problems in and of themselves, which is why they stay in place. But they're symptomatic of the bigger thing that's happened since the early 1980s. The economy works better for some people than for others. Success isn't as meritocratic as it used to be, And when success is granted, it's rewarded with higher gains than in previous eras. You don't have to think that's morally right or wrong. And again, in this story, it doesn't matter why it happened. It just matters that it did happen, and it caused the economy to shift away from people's expectations that were set after the war. That there's this broad middle class without systematic inequality, where your neighbors next door and a few miles down the road live a life that's pretty similar to yours. Part of the reason these expectations have stuck around for 35 years after they shifted away from reality is because they felt so good for so many people when they were valid. Something that good, or at least the impression that it was that good, isn't easy to let go of. So people haven't let go of it. They want it back. Maybe the one thing I wanted to add was, depending on your own income level, your own background, like we have a we have a wide variety of, and and diversity of certainly of income levels and wealth levels who listen to this podcast and regardless of where you're at or where you fall when you listen to this you can sort of start to i think in our day and age in our culture you can sort of start to um have feelings of right wrong moral like it shouldn't be this way it should be this way oh well you know whatever I I think mine and your goal with this episode is less to focus on that uh, and more to what Morgan makes the point of here, which is like, this happened. Let's talk about how we got here. Um, Then we can maybe have a conversation about what each individual should do today in 2021 going forward. But try not to get too hung up on 
on that piece of it. Cause I think if you do, it just lets you get really emotionally tied up in that. And then you're not thinking clearly to even be able to use any of this information in a practical, in a, in a practical way. way. Okay. Section 10, the tea party, Occupy Wall Street, Brexit and Donald Trump each represents a group shouting, stop the ride. I want off. The details of their shouting are different, but they're all shouting, at least in part, because stuff isn't working for them within the context of the post-war expectation that stuff should work roughly the same for roughly everyone. You can scoff at linking the rise of Trump to income inequality alone, and you should. These things are always layers of complexity deep. But it's a key part of what drives people to think, I don't live in the world I expected. That pisses me off. So screw this and screw you. I'm going to fight for something totally different because this, whatever it is, isn't working. Take that mentality and raise it to the power of Facebook, Instagram, and cable news, where people are more keenly aware of how other people live than ever before. It's gasoline on a flame. Benedict Evans says, The more the internet exposes people to new points of view, the angrier people get that different views exist. That's a big shift from the post-war economy, where the range of economic opinions were smaller, both because the actual range of outcomes was smaller and because it wasn't as easy to see and learn what other people thought and how they lived. I'm not pessimistic. Economics is a story of cycles. Things come, things go. The unemployment rate is now the lowest it's been in decades. Wages are now actually growing faster for low-income workers than the rich. College costs, by and large, stop growing once grants are factored in. If everyone studied advances in health care, communication, transportation, and civil rights since the glorious 1950s, my guess is most wouldn't want to go back. But a central theme of this story is that expectations move slower than reality on the ground. That was true when people clung to 1950s expectations as the economy changed over the next 35 years. And even if a middle-class boom began today, expectations that the odds are stacked against everyone but those at the top may stick around. So the era of this isn't working may stick around. And the era of we need something radically new right now, whatever it is, may stick around. Which, in a way, is part of what starts events that led to things like World War II, where this story began. History is just one damn thing after another. Okay, so aside from the fact that Morgan Housel is just a really good writer and like does such a clever way of wrapping this up, I thought that his final point here was really, really nice, right? Like he kind of goes back to what you and I said about how, look, if you actually looked at certainly like civil rights and healthcare advances and like the like we said, everybody has an iPhone in their pocket or whatever, life is pretty awesome today and you probably wouldn't want to go back to living in the 50s yeah he said it super well so i'm not going to say anything else because it'll just be me saying it less well (laughs) i think um maybe the only thing i would say before we wrap up then is if you're listening to this and you found like this really interesting and you want more of this kind of stuff you should definitely check out the book but also right when he talks about at the very end of how this sort of cycle repeats it makes me think of that book the fourth turning and about how the the quote let me let me pull it up so i don't butcher it so there's this this famous quote that's been going around a lot on social media over the last couple of years it's by author g michael hopf it says hard times create strong men strong men create good times good times create weak men and weak men create hard times and it sort of just cycles through and and that's sort of you know the book the fourth turning and then also where morgan household ends this book both sort of end on this 
little bit of a nod to the fact that we've been living in really, really good times, and it's been creating a culture of weak folks who are now creating some hard times. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're kind of getting back around to the beginning of the cycle. So I think maybe, uh, maybe we can wrap it up there. Well, I guess the last thing I'll say is what you and I try to do in light of that is like not just get angry over the things that we don't have control over and that we we can't change, but just recognize like, okay, to a certain extent, this is what is happening. This is how things are. We can only do our limited little part of, you know, what impacts that. Mm -hmm. And then we just have to do our best to use what is in our control to navigate the circumstances as well as possible. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. uh, Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The best thing we can do is to learn from history and try not to repeat the same mistakes and do the best thing that we can going forward by focusing on controlling what we can control. So I, I think I think what you said is perfect. Yeah, we like focusing on what's in our control. And you know what else we like? What do we like? Stuff we like. All right, Nick, this is long. Give us your stuff we like. Super, (laughs) super short version. I am liking uh, Dune, which I think I may have done a little while back, but I'm doing it again. Um, Dune is a sci-fi fantasy book that has been really, really good. I've really enjoyed it. The movie is coming out this week, which I'm super excited to go see. I wanted to talk about it in relation to this episode, specifically related to, you know, sort of the focusing on what you can control, because there's so many things that happen in this book that Paul, the main character, gets thrown into these situations that he, he can't control a lot of it. He gets thrown into some really terrible situations that most of it is outside his control. And he has this great quote, which is sort of like a central theme driving for the book uh, about fear. And he says to himself, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. And only I will remain. Anyways, I, uh, I've i really enjoyed this book. And there's a lot of themes in it related to what we just talked about, because I think it's very easy for us to look at where we're at right now and all that's going on in the world, all that's going on in the political landscape, and get really fearful about the future and really fearful about our money and really fearful about where things are going. But this idea that if we let that fear come in, uh, then we're definitely not going to end up in a better place. And so the best thing we can do is to not fear and let it pass through us and then focus on controlling what we can control. So if you like that kind of stuff, and if you are looking for a good fiction read, I highly recommend Dune. That's what I've been liking. Sweet. Do you have a, um, a wrap-up summary for us? Wrap-up summary would be the very beginning of that Morgan Housel postscript, where he says, the short story of the U.S. consumer is things were very uncertain, then they were very good, then pretty bad, then really good, then really bad, and now here we are. As always, thank you so much for listening. Yes, this was long. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>